This is hell. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell, and likely there is no more dissenting opinion from our current political system other than the idea of a socialist, even communist alternative to capitalism. At one time, a system of equality focused on the public good rather than private profit. It was not seen as extreme as corporate-backed politicians in the establishment media want us to believe it is today. But to overcome the current state of anti-socialism and anti-communism, more has to be done than only pointing out the failures of capitalism. Although that is still very important, if not essential, in the raising of working class awareness that there is, in fact, a working class. The another world is possible crowd is absolutely correct, but far too often what that world might look like has not been a significant part of that conversation. Today we will talk about what the first stages of that transformation may look like when we have the return of political theorist Jody Dean, who is a contributing editor of Socialist Reconstruction, A Better Future for the United States. The book is, as it states, the result of a three-year-long collective project that began with a discussion and decision by the Fourth Party Congress of the Party for Socialism and Liberation, held in 2019. The PSL is a revolutionary socialist organization in the United States, which was founded back in 2004. Jody teaches political, feminist, and media theory. This is Jody's fourth appearance on This Is Hell. She was on most recently to discuss her book, Comrade, an essay on political belonging. And that was back in 2019. You can follow or find all of our interviews with Jody at our website, thisishell.com, when you search on her name, Jody Dean. Jody is a professor in the political science department at Hobart and William Smith Colleges in the state of New York. You can follow Jody on Twitter at Jody7768. Jody7768. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming, and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Richard Norwood, who has been spelling producer Sebastian Vupper as Sebastian celebrates his wedding. Congratulations again to Seb and Chloe. Richard, anything new by you? Did you get married since the last time I saw you? I'm doing what to Sebastian? <laughs> You're spelling him. <laughs> spelling him. Spelling, it's an old basketball term. So, uh, uh, what's new about you? Oh, hey, you know how this is my biannual rant about you know how there's 12 million people living in illinois yes and there's like three million people living in chicago yes and yet that's like a fourth of the population lives in this metropolitan area Correct. and yet there is not one single vehicle emission test site in the city of chicago <laughs> good lord you're kidding me i am not so how where do you have to go to get your get emissions test? well luckily since i'm here i'm gonna go up to skokie <laughs> good lord <laughs> you have to drive you, you have to drive like 45 minutes at least if you live in the city to go to a vehicle test emission so, site so you're emitting yes all sorts of terrible emissions Potentially. To get to. To get to an emissions <laughs> testing site. That is right. This seems kind of self-defeating. <laughs> Good Lord. So what do you think? Are you going to pass? Oh, yeah. Shouldn't be a problem. Yeah, I was really surprised the last time we passed because the time before that we did not. It's always kind of you feel really bad about the planet when you go to an emissions testing site and you're like, oh, I'm, I'm sure I'm fine. And then they tell you, oh, no, you're 
you're part of the problem. My weekend was uh, very busy. It was my own anniversary weekend with my non-wife, and you can hear all about our unwedded bliss by listening to our Patreon podcast from last week at patreon.com slash thisishell. But we started our celebration by doing what most people do when marking their anniversary, and that is by going to a a graveyard, a cemetery. Keep in mind, it was originally her idea, so it was only natural for me to think there was the slightest possibility that at some point, while on a historic tour of Graceland Cemetery here in Chicago, she would just turn to me and say, Our relationship is like the people buried under our feet. It is dead to me. But fortunately, that did not happen. But I am still hoping that visiting a graveyard on our anniversary is not some kind of omen or harbinger of things to come. Richard, other than my unspouse suggesting we celebrate our anniversary where corpses rot in the ground, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, considering all of the crises we are experiencing today, from wars to pandemics to climate change and everything in between, as we approach Halloween, what trick-or-treater costume would frighten you the most. <laughs> We're getting some really good responses so far. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie or toque if you prefer, as well as the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our merchant right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, Without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you who have shown your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover, this is hell, and Richard has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is a very particular bacon, egg, and cheese sandwich. I'm surprised you can say particular. I have problems with the <laughs> word particular for whatever particular mm. reason. An article last week at the Eater website for New York City, ny.eater.com, has the headline, the best dishes eater editors ate this week, hangover remedies, cuffing season cures, and more. Right. New York Eater senior critic Robert Seitzema yeah. offered as his best dish of the week the hangover cure at Little Curran. Rest, Little Curran restaurant located at 81 St. Mark's place between 1st and 2nd Avenues in the East Village. Sightseema writes, there are dozens of variations on New York City's classic BEC, that's bacon, egg, and cheese sandwich, but this may be the most opulent. Little Kieran arrived on St. Mark's Place in July, serving a combination of heroes, bowls, and breakfast sandwiches, often with Vietnamese and Japanese flourishes. Creating a menu with lots of unique dishes, including a sandwich version of pho. Is it pho or pho? Pho. Pho. Uh, which is weird because that's a soup. 
Yes, exactly. <laughs> a sandwich version of soup. Exactly. The, <laughs> you wrap your mind around that for a second. The Hangover Cure, which costs $10, is the name of a, bre- of a breakfast sandwich that layers fried eggs, bacon, American cheese, a crunchy layer of hash browns, and spam on a round, <laughs> puffy roll. It's the perfect remedy for that throbbing headache from last night's excesses. And every bite is a multi-textural delight. That makes this week's Hangover Cure a breakfast sandwich that layers fried eggs, bacon, American cheese, a crunchy layer of hash browns, and spam on a round, puffy roll. Uh, spam. That's the part. <laughs> that's the part that I'm not too sure if that's going to cure my hangover, or the way in which it will cure my hangover, because if, if it means getting rid of all of your alcohol, then that's a, probably a good way to do it. This is how we stream live Monday through Wednesday. At 10 in the morning, Chicago time. And our podcast shortly after during the week at thisishell.com. The world broadcast premiere of every week's This Is Hell airs Saturday mornings at 9 a.m. on Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM. You can also hear This Is Hell in abbreviated one-hour versions weekly on Radio Free Moscow in Moscow. Idaho and on CKUW-FM in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, the community radio station of the University of Michigan. Michigan? No, Winnipeg. (laughs) We air twice every week on Lumpen Radio at lumpenradio.com and thrice weekly on the United Kingdom-based online radio outlet Beware, which you can find at bewaretheradio.com. Thanks to Chicago Sound Experiment, Lumpen Radio, Radio Free Moscow. Winnipeg Community Radio and Beware the Radio for carrying This Is Hell. If you would like to hear This Is Hell on your favorite local public station or an online station like Beware, contact your local station or favorite internet radio site and tell them why you enjoy listening to This Is Hell and why you want to hear us carried within your community. You can email your constructive and destructive criticism, your guest or topic suggestions, or anything you would like to share to chuck at thisishell.com. Message us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio or direct message us via Twitter at thisishellradio. And if you do, we will likely read whatever you send us on air. If you if we have your suggested guest on or topic on the show, we will thank you personally during that conversation. We received an email from a past guest on our show, the filmmaker Joe Winston. Joe writes, hi, Chuck and team. I'm a lifelong Chicagoan, local documentary filmmaker, including What's the Matter with Kansas, and my latest film, Punch Nine for Harold Washington, is enjoying a theatrical run at AMC Theaters. It's been running for a week in 18 cities around the country, and AMC just extended the show, or the Chicago run for another week. Through Thursday, October 20th, Stevie Wonder came to a screening in L.A. Andrew Young attended in Atlanta. Not only did I love the—he said not only did I love the movie, but I— learned a few things. Richard Roper gave the movie three and a half out of four stars in the Chicago Sun-Times, and you can see the trailer and learn more at punch9movie.com. I'd love to talk with Chuck about it on the air. All the best, Joe. Listeners may remember that Joe was on our show way back in 2009 when we spoke with him live in studio about his documentary, What's the Matter with Kansas, and that we were joined on the phone with the book's author, Thomas Frank. Although I did not think Joe remembers being on our show 13 years ago, or maybe uh, Joe is assuming we do not remember him being on the show as we've done, you know, roughly 150 to 200 interviews every year. Nonetheless, Joe's new movie, Punch Nine for Harold Washington, is a reference not to punching nine people for 
Harold Washington, but a reference to old manual voting machines when you would punch a hole in a card to signify your vote. IMDb describes the movie simply as the story of Harold Washington elected in 1983 as Chicago's first African-American mayor, the political battles he fought, and his legacy to Chicago and the nation. A quick word about Joe's work with Thomas Frank in What's the Matter with Kansas. If you do like Tom's 2004 book, see the movie, because despite being named after and based on that book, Joe takes a lot of liberties, including going back to Kansas five years after the book came out to see what had changed since it was published. So even if you like Thomas Frank's book, What's the Matter with Kansas, or you don't like it, it doesn't matter. It, While it's based on Tom's book, it's not necessarily just about Tom's book. Joe also delves into the working class voting against their best self-interest idea and how they determine who and what to support at the ballot box, a topic that came up following President Trump being elected. So it's a very prescient movie as well. So we replied to Joe, and we are currently working on confirming an interview date, and I believe it's going to be on this Wednesday. I believe he's going to be on Wednesday, October 19th, so tune in for that. Again, you have, if you have anything you would like to share with us, and then we'll share it with the listeners, email us at chuckatthisishell.com or message us via Facebook or tweet at us. Coming up, political theorist Jody Dean returns to offer an alternative to climate change causing capitalism. Richard will share some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, considering all of the crises we are facing today, from wars to pandemics to climate change and everything in between, as we approach Halloween, what trick-or-treater costume would frighten you the most? We'll also tell you what happened behind the paywall on Patreon during our Patreon podcast last week, and we'll share with you who our upcoming guests will be on this week's show. The future ain't what it used to be. This is hell. And unlike today, at one time, the future for the left, not only in the United States, but around the world, was well known. Following the success of the labor movement in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and that movement in many ways becoming government policy during the mid-20th century New Deal, the left understood its inevitable goal, its horizon they wished to achieve was one of an alternative to capitalism. They believed another world was possible, even if they did not know, did not use that phrase yet. The world they imagined would not be controlled by the wealthy few, but the working class majority. And that alternative to capitalist apartheid was socialism, if not full-blown communism. Without that horizon, the left or whatever constitutes the left in the United States has seemed rudderless. Meager liberal reforms have proven ineffective against capitalism's continued destruction and structural cruelty. Here to help us understand why the horizon of socialism was abandoned and how it may be the only system that can help us survive all of the crises we face today, political theorist Jody Dean returns to discuss a book that she is a contributing editor to, Socialist Reconstruction, A Better Future for the United States. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Jody. Thanks so much for having me, Chuck. I'm really happy to be in conversation with you today. Thank you very much. It's been three years. I hope that the last three years haven't been as horrible for you as it has been for many people. Have you been in good health? Well, I think um, overall, I've done better than a lot of people. We didn't lose anyone in the family, though. You know, everybody got it, um, COVID at one point or another, and my cat died. Oh, so that's not all that great. Yeah, the last three years has been very mm-hmm. rough on everybody. So as you write, in your, or as you know, the book states, I'm going to go back and forth between saying you write, and I understand that this is a collective process, but you write about the 
um, anti-communism has long been the unofficial religion and in the world generally in the post-Cold War era. So how difficult is it to overcome anti-communism as a religion? Because to me, sometimes it just seems completely insurmountable. That's a really good question. Um, Anti-communism has been like the air that we have breathed or that's been like forced on us in the United States for over a hundred years. It's like, it's like we're constantly get this drumbeat of it's impossible. Communism is not only impossible, but it's bad. Everything associated with communism is horrible. Um, and so on, like all the time, all the time. And one of the things that, I mean, it's even repeated on, on by some people on the so-called left. I mean, clearly, you know, the Democratic Party um, is anti-communist and has always been anti-communist. And then and you get some kind of left liberals who are anti-communist. So, so it's a problem. Um, I don't think it's insurmountable, though, for a few reasons. One is I think that um, every progressive is anti-racist. Um, and the more progressives start to understand that the history of anti-communism has been a history of white supremacy and a history opposed to black radicalism, then they can start to realize, oh God, you know, maybe I shouldn't be an anti-communist, right? Maybe I need to recognize how anti-communism has been used for nearly a hundred years to bring down some of the strongest um, black radicals and black revolutionaries in the country, um, not to mention all over the world. So, so that's one inroad. Another inroad is to start to recognize, hey, wait a minute, there've been actually real socialist leaders in the US um, that the mainstream has tried to make us not see as socialists like Martin Luther King Jr. or you know, Helen Keller or Einstein, right? These are people with generally sort of who are generally well thought of by everyone. And once that the fact that they were socialist is brought up, that can help people kind of, of, of um, distance themselves a little bit from anti-communism. I think also the more people realize like, oh God, you know, anything that capitalists don't like, they call communists, right? Like bike lanes or um, you know, school lunches, right? Most people should be in favor of bike lanes and school lunches. Um, and once you start to recognize, oh, it's just the things that the capitalists don't like are called communist, then that also um, ma makes communism a little bit more appealing. Uh, I, I may have mentioned this um, another time when I've, I've been on the show, but a few years ago, I was um, giving a talk and someone after the talk was saying, you know, honestly, um, I have to be a socialist. That's the only retirement program I can imagine because um, I'll never be able to earn enough to live if we don't have socialism. And so, so this final part of the answer is I think more and more people are recognizing that the only way we can have a future right, globally um, and in the United States is if we get rid of rapacious, exploitative capitalism and actually you know, build together a system that will protect people and the planet, that will let people and the planet flourish. Did that exploitative nature of capitalism reveal itself during the pandemic? And is that why uh, you and your collaborators decided to write this book now? Uh, is the, are people far more aware of the shortcomings of capitalism due to the pandemic, which led to this book? Um, that's absolutely true. The party was already thinking in this direction, but the pandemic brought it home in 
such a strong way. Um, as you know, just as you're saying, right, people, we all realized that we were dependent on essential workers. And then we all witnessed as um, capital push um, essential workers back into factories, back into horrible working conditions with not adequate um, um, PPE, not adequate medical benefits. We also all saw what happened happened when there was a, with, with capitalist medicine, when medicine is primarily a capitalist venture, there's not central planning people who are, are forced out of their jobs and forced um, and, and, and lack medical care are kind of outwits in essentially left to die. And without a central planning, uh, without adequate central planning, we lost over a million people and it didn't have to be that way. And so I think from the the um, experiences that we had with the initial shutdowns of the economy and how frightening that was, to our experiences of dependence, to then the realization that honestly, any decent country has to guarantee the health and well-being of its population. I think it makes people more and more ready for socialism. You also point out, you and the other contributors to the book, including yourself, point out that the among the Marxist left, it has long been a principle that no one can sketch out a blueprint for what a socialist society or government will look like. But that's what the assembled writers have done here, <laughs> not because we have located a crystal ball, but because it has become politically necessary for our current time. Why has it long been a principle of the Marxist left that no one can or should sketch out a blueprint for what a socialist society or government will look like? Because we were speaking to a writer by the name of Alex Colo last week, and he was saying very much the same thing when it comes to the people who are fighting against climate change, that exactly what that future society that would not be as contributing to climate change would look like has not been discussed enough. So why has it long been a principle of the Marxist left that no one can or should sketch out a blueprint for what a social society or government will look like? The primary reason is because the struggle and the revolution itself will produce new forms and new ideas, right? The solutions arise in the course of the struggle. So Marxists for the longest time have recognized the um, essentially the creativity of the working class in producing new solutions um, as the working class struggles. So that's a that's the kind of primary reason. And Marx is often quoted, um, he's got something like, um, you know, our task is not to produce recipes for the cookshops of the future. And the way I think about that now is like, well, I mean, we're not going to say that there's one recipe, but we need to know, are we making like spaghetti sauce? And if we're making spaghetti sauce, there'll be a bunch of different recipes for spaghetti sauce. But but, but maybe we can at least decide, OK, we're making spaghetti sauce. Let's try this set of recipes. Let's say, try this other set of recipes and start to recognize that, in fact, part of the struggle is producing the new ideas, is giving ourselves a stronger sense of what the world we want will look like. So, so even though it's been a kind of you know, mantra on the Marxist left that you can't predict the future, that shouldn't mean that you can't imagine different futures and that you can't try out different futures and you can't recognize that that's also part of the struggle. You even point out that Karl Marx himself declined to describe the details of future socialism. We were discussing anti-communism just a couple of minutes ago. If Marx and Engels 
de- declined to give details. How vague, even utopian, are their writings? Because the way in those who uh, use the term Marxist as a word of derision suggest, it, 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 they suggest it is a very well-established idea of what Marxism is supposed to be in the future, even a concrete plan of how a socialist society or even a communist one would look. So has there ever been a clear understanding of how such a socialist society could should or could function? Well, you know, the um, discussion of the Paris Commune that Marx provides in the Civil War in France um, is gives one set of one glimpse. There are other small glimpses in different parts of the writing of his writing. But one of the key things about in the discussion of the Paris Commune is he says that what the Commune did was was provide a form for the working class's own self-emancipation. And this form was one that that recognized that 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 working class government's not going to be like a debating society of parliamentarians far removed from the experiences of of producing goods, producing services, producing forms of life, right? Instead, the Paris Commune was an was like a working and executive body at the same time. It both deliberated and carried out, and so we get a glimpse there of an actual working class government in a kind of nascent form and and in a and a, and a form that that's worth fighting for and worth building um you know i've also this term i've been teaching um wb's du bois uh, black reconstruction america which is a brilliant book everyone should should study it and du bois is really exciting because he presents the freedman the freedman's bureau and the uh, um the early form of reconstruction as also a kind of nascent version of what a real um you know interracial multiracial black and white working class government could look like and so we have even in you know in u.s history a vision of reconstruction as yes if the working class is in charge of its own destiny of its own life of the of the country as a whole it can produce something great so in the marxist tradition you know there's the kind of catchphrase oh we can't produce you know recipes for the cookshops of the future of the future, but there are real, um, there is real attention to some of the experiments and how promising they can be. The book also states that Marx's manifesto includes a series of immediate changes for the first stage of socialism in advanced capitalist countries: the abolition of private land and private land ownership and inheritances, state control of banking and industry, the shared responsibility responsibility of all to labor, free education for all, a gradual abolition of the distinction between town and country, and so on. The manifesto provides no further details on what all this looks like, and even these measures, as Marx writes, will, of course, be different in different countries. The one that I always hear, like if I'm talking to somebody about, well, the conversation that we're having today when I was talking to people this uh, past weekend about it, and as soon as I would mention the end of private property, people seem to get incredibly defensive. What does Marx mean by the end of of, uh, private property? Does that mean that the first stage of socialism uh, means that everybody has to give up all of their stuff? Oh uh, no, not at all, right? He means that he means two things. He means on the one hand, the end of private property in the means of production, right? So the end of saying like, you know, that steel is private property, right? Or steel company would be private property, or that, you know, energy could be private property, or that the the um, agriculture could somehow be private property, right? And so um, so this the first thing that Marx means the abolition of private property is the abolition of 
of, of a structure of ownership of the means of production. So that's the first part. Um, the second part, which is related, is an end to bourgeois private property, which is a variation on the same thing, but really means um, private, like the use of property for exploiting others, right? The use of property for private benefit at the cost of, you know, at the cost of others, at the cost of the well-being of other people. So no, um, you know, no reasonable Marxist thinks that the abolition of private property means that someone's going to show up at your house and like take all your stuff and put it in a car and drive off, or that your house will immediately be expropriated from you. Not at all. What it means is say getting rid of the mortgage um, that lets the bank actually be the owner of the house, right? Getting rid of these corporations that that somehow can control our food supply. I mean, the more you think about it, isn't it weird that something as necessary for life as food is commodified? So the end, the end of private property means let's stop meet trying to meet social needs via commodities because in fact that doesn't right it means that the people with a lot of money get more and the people with less get little so we've got it so the abolition of private property is really about the abolition of private control of the industries and services that are necessary for life and just the other part that really stuck with me in that quote is this idea of the distinction between town and country. Uh, why is a gradual abolition of the distinction between town and country necessary for the first stage of uh, cap- uh, socialism? Uh, what what does that mean, this uh, ending the distinction between town and country? That's a super cool question. And I think there that people can have lots of different um, answers for this. So um, in the in the first part, like if we think about it historically, what it really means is an end to this distinction where the 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 country is considered this area of 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 kind of rural backwardness, and the city is an area of progress. And so, you know, in the nineteenth century, the thought was like we've got to um, abolish that. In, in abolishing this distinction, what this means is making sure that rural areas are no longer backwards; that they have the same kinds of of um, you know, creative, artistic, cultural, intellectual, material possibilities that are present in this in the you know that are that are present in the city. I think for now it can mean something a little bit different, right? We can think about it in terms of the ways that um, you know, particularly over the course of the 20th century and early 21st century, that lots and lots of rural areas have become like um, abandoned hinterlands, like kind of desolate and impoverished. And it's like capitalism has used up so many areas, like chew them up and spit it out and abandon them. And so you have places where like all you have is like a couple of, say, Walmart super centers and maybe a call center and an Amazon warehouse and then a few dollar stores. And there's no clinics and people have, you know, there's high suicide rates and drug abuse rates and there's no no um, abortion facilities available, like nothing that people need. And so in this way, thinking about the abolition of town and country is really about it identifying how capitalism chews up and spits out areas and then trying to reimagine a kind of more a smoother better more um environmentally and socially and culturally um livable form of life 
And you want the you and the other collaborate your collaborators on this book, the other contributing editors to this book, you all want the working class to reorganize society. You believe that they can reorganize society for the better. If the working class can only reorganize organize society when it does have power, how much focus has there been on how the working class will get that power? If there's not much writing on a blueprint for a socialist state, how much writing is there on the ways that the working class can attain that political power they need? Um, there's not been a lot, to be really honest. So, And we can also think about this in kind of like two stages. So one would be the, the stage of revolution. And that's not what this book does. Like this book begins from the premise of, okay, the working class has power. Now, what do we do? It's like, we're not going to Disney World, right? You know, everything about the end of the football games, you just won the Super Bowl. What are you doing? So this is not, this is not that. This is like the working class now has power in its hands. It has um, defeated capitalists. The, the society recognizes that it's time to build socialism. And so what do we do, right? How can we imagine that? Like, what would be the possible steps um, in doing that? Like, given where, given what we have as the United States, right? You know, arguably the most developed Developed country in the world with a highly educated population, right? We've got mass literacy. How does the working class then transform all of society? What would be the mechanisms of doing that? And so the book tries to imagine this in, in really concrete ways. It's like a proof of concept. One of our, our um, comrades um, is an engineer and was like, that's what, like, we need to think about this book as proof of concept. We can show, given where we are, how we can build a socialist society in ways that um, will make life better for the vast majority of people. And so the book does this from, you know, um, in a whole variety of areas, all you know, from the um, change in constitutional structure through healthcare, um, education, and so on, and makes really sort of concrete proposals. And and I should add here, like these are not like concrete proposals, like oh, we need to you know pass this law. No, no, this is like the beginning point is a brand new constitution, um, a brand new way of thinking about how people live together. Um, and it's what we're hoping is that this will be part of and help stimulate more and more conversation that lets you know all of us think better about like, we don't have to live the way we're living. Society doesn't have to run down this track that we're told on. And in fact, climate change requires that we do something differently. And so this tries to kind of suggest a pathway that this something different could happen. The idea of rewriting or having a new constitution has come up in our on our show in the past. And unfortunately, I can't remember off the top of my head who the guest was that I was speaking with. But when I suggested that, you know, is that the solution to have a new constitution, they reacted with a tone of fear that any kind of new constitution would likely, because of the uh, political powers that be, because the power of corporate money right now, it would be co-opted by, uh, it would be co-opted by the powers that be, and it would lead to a more, and not socialist, but a more fascist constitution. What are your, do you have fears when it comes to rewriting a constitution that it could be co-opted by the far right? That's such a good question. Um, our premise is that the working class has taken power. And so under conditions where the U.S. remains a capitalist country, a constitutional convention will do nothing but entrench the power 
of the far right and of the you know the the property owners and the um, and the capitalist class. So it can't just be we can't just begin from the idea of like oh let's have the society we're in and just change the constitution right that'll be utterly inadequate. What, what we have to have is um, a revolution of the working class, where the working class now is in charge and is remaking society. So we are beginning from that premise um, for precisely the reasons that you point to. If we only have a constitutional change in the society where we are now, that will end up empowering the far right. We are speaking with political theorist Jody Dean, contributing editor to Socialist Reconstruction, A Better Future for the United States. You can follow Jody on Twitter at Jody7768. If the first step in the first stage of a socialist state is removing private property as the engine of society in a socialist state, what would replace private property as an engine of society? Planning. So this is a long-term socialist answer, but it's a long-term socialist answer because it's correct, right? So let's just think about how come. So under the system that we have right now, we've got private property and markets. Really, this means that most of us are dependent on markets for everything, right? We, labor is distributed as a market, and it's terribly distributed. It, this means that most people end up in jobs that they don't particularly like, right? The only reason people go to do these jobs they don't like is because they need a wage, and they need a wage to pay for food and housing. And in fact, now we recognize, given the terrible kinds of inflation and the, and the really just unconscionable um, you know, um, cost of rents right now that 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 our that the market system is not working. It is not effectively distributing labor or housing or basic goods. So the 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 first idea here is recognizing that we can distribute goods in other ways. We can distribute services in other ways. We can distribute work in other ways. And then and these other ways would be planning. Already it's the case that planning is a major force in the US economy. For example, something like Walmart, Walmart or Amazon, right? Leading largest corporations in the world, they engage in planning all the time, right? They, these corporations are larger than some countries and they organize their own operations as um, via forms of planning, right? You know, people probably know that um, Sears tried to organize its own operations via internal markets and it crashed the company completely. Right. So so big corporations know that planning um, that planning matters and planning makes a difference. And that's how we can change the way that I mean, we can end dependence on markets for distributing um, of really important and basic um, basic services and basic um, and basic work. The book also states it has long been assumed that the irreconcilable contradictions of capitalism will become so pronounced usually through the combination of a failed war and an economic crisis, that this will cause a revolutionary crisis whereby the working class and the ruling class can no longer go on living in the old way. The shattering of the capitalist state and its institutional legitimacy will create a breach into what socialists can step with a forward-looking solution and lead the working class to power. But again, that's an assumption, an assumption based on capitalism failing and a failed war, a failing economy, all of which would likely cause great suffering. Can a state based on working class power 
only come about when there is much suffering because I don't want to be put in a position where I'm rooting for a crisis or cheering on suffering in order for the working class to come to power. Does there have to be suffering for the working class to come to power and to bring about a socialist state? Yeah, thanks so much for that question, Chuck. Um, Because I really need to be clear that this book um, on socialist reconstruction is in no way a kind of accelerationist manifesto urging the destruction of everything and the immiseration of everybody. I mean, capitalism does just fine doing that by itself, right? Capitalism destroys trillions and trillions of dollars um, in the economy. Capitalism kills millions of millions of people. Capitalism destroys hopes and dreams. And you know, what is it like 70% of the species in the world. So we don't need socialists to um, argue for, oh, we just have to make things worse. What our premise is, is that revolution will happen, right? Revolution occurs historically, revolutions are inevitable. What matters is how, what position are we in when it happens, right? Like if we just think right now, you know, a lot of people on the right in particular um, are talking about civil war. I actually don't think that's, that's incorrect, that we're in some kind of phase, I would call it cold civil war. But, but if that's true, then where does it go, right? If the left is not organized, if the left doesn't have a vision of what we want, who wins, right? Who wins in this time of a people that we know will come? Um, our premise is that the, the upheaval will come and we on the left need to be ready with a socialist vision and a socialist consciousness that lets us build society in the way it should, in the way it should go. Let me use another example, right? Like 2008 was the crisis of capitalism that everybody, every Marxist has been you know, talking about as inevitable for you know, over a century. And yet the left wasn't ready. Right, not at all. And so instead, what happens is the banks are bailed out and the people are, you know, left even worse off. Right. So banks got everything, Wall Street, you know, Main Street got nothing. This had a really ter- it had a disproportionate effects on the black community in the United States who had lots of their um, savings in their houses who lost and that lost um, that value. So I think we've got to recognize that the left has to be prepared for the crises that come. And part of that preparation is building a socialist consciousness and a vision of what socialism can be when we are ready to build it. Socialist reconstruction also posits the idea that the opposition to and wariness of socialism must be overcome in advance of bigger crises and an ongoing uh, and on an ongoing basis during periods of capitalist stability. Is not saying you are socialist while endorsing ideas, policies, and legislation while taking actions that are meant to advance causes that align with socialism is not saying that you are socialist in that process, is that still being anti-socialist despite you endorsing policies that are in fact socialist? Is, is it necessary to say that you are socialist? Oh God, that's a really good question. Um, maybe we can think about it in terms of like specific audiences. And and so what's the, what's the purpose of saying you know, that a view or a policy or an approach is socialist versus not socialist. And I think a lot of it depends on, you know, what's the audience, what's the stage of the struggle at a, at a specific point. So, 
like, like for example, I think you know the, the right calls anything that even people like Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi do socialist. And it would be ridiculous for them to say, well, you know, this um, child tax credit is a kind of socialism. I mean, it just means it's a kind of meaningless point there because they're clearly defenders of the capitalist class, particularly finance capital. Um, and so for them to kind of make an academic um, argument like, well, yes, there's a socialist you know, presence here, I think would just be wrong. I think um, for organizers and activists, the question is, what is speaking to the people in your community? What is it that the people in community want? If we, if we say that, oh, they want really decent schools, they want health care. Um, we can fight for schools and health care, and we don't have to call it socialist, but we can call it socialist. So I think we I think actually on the left, we need to think a lot more about what do we want? We want to end um, the dictatorship of the market on our lives. We want to end this kind of mass immiseration. We want to protect the climate. We want to protect our communities. And if we call that socialist, that's great. It lets people understand that that's socialist. But if it takes a while to call that socialist and let people say, no, I'm just going to support these things, then I think that's OK, too. I think on the left, we've got to stop making everything like a language politics and realize what real and make it more a, a materialist politics rather than a language politics. You write that winning a majority of the U.S. working class to socialism or to be accepting of it requires contending above all with the myth that socialism is a failed project, that socialist leadership and planning lead to economic stagnation or poverty, and that socialism is anti-democratic. And, you know, often when you do hear this kind of criticisms, it's founded on the idea that the Soviet Union was a communist country and therefore any any experiment in communism or socialism will lead to all of the problems that the Soviet Union had. So is there an example of socialism as a successful project or have those who believe in the anti-socialism, anti-communism religion already claim those socialist successes as their very own. Yeah, so I there's there's so much to unpack in in that question and in the the all of the different kind of of, of, of assumptions that people that you're flagging, right? That go into people's um, thinking about this. And one of the kinds of assumptions in there is, is one that's like compares the US right now to say the Soviet Union in the 1930s or 1940s, and then starts to say, well, you know, I live in the United States in 2022. Do I want to live in 1930s um, Russia? Now, some people would definitely say yes, but just for the sake of argument, let, let's say people who you know would not say yes. The point is not to try to compare the US now with a past um, socialist experiment, or even with the small countries that are socialist now, say like Cuba, the point is to, is to think about how would the US here and now be better if we were socialists? Like maybe we wouldn't have massive amounts of homelessness and massive amounts of tent cities um, in so many urban areas in the US. I mean, that's unconscionable how many people are living in tents in the major cities in the US. Maybe it would be the case if we were socialists, we would not have had over a million people die of COVID. 
maybe it would be the case that it's that that rural communities are not having mass suicide rates and opioid addiction if we had a kind of medical system that was really based on meeting needs not getting profits for pharmaceutical companies and letting doctors just make money in private practice so i think the real the real question is not do we see one historical example in the past that of, of everything being perfect and great, but how is what would what we have now actually be better and meet real social needs? And I'll just add to that, you know, um, for the for most of human history, and now I'm just going to mean like recorded human history, like history since writing, um, democracy was considered one of the worst forms of government. Right, the classical political theorists have like six different kinds of government, and they consider democracy one of the worst. It was only by like the late 18th century um, that people started thinking of democracy as a good form of government, and really not until later in the 19th century. And even now, you know, it's highly contested on the right. Like many people on the right are highly skeptical of mass participation in politics. So I think again, so, so but if you'd ask someone. 200 years, oh, you want a democracy? Well, show me one that's worked. Everyone has said it was impossible, but it wasn't. It's just a longer, it's just a long process of getting there. And I think we should think about socialism the same way. The earlier experiments made progress. They had achievements, like achievement, achievements in the development of, of industry in the Soviet Union and China, achievements in literacy, major achievements in, in women's inequality. But as you mentioned, there were also things that went wrong. We can learn from the achievements um, and take things further rather than saying we're just going to be trapped in that old kind of system. The book also states that it serves as an ideological intervention in a period of general ideological retreat when many movements worldwide have been generally backing away from the question of power. In your opinion, why are movements backing away from the question of power? What leads them to doing that? So it seemed to me that this is a um, a left-wing phenomenon like that leftists somehow think that power is bad because the right globally is quite blatant and open about the desire for taking power and using power and the left has been reluctant um, to do that i think part of that um, has to do with the some of the um, you know, mistakes that happened in the soviet period um, I think other parts of it, though, and, then, and then I would add also because of you know, the um, defeat of the Soviet Union and its collapse and sort of end of, you know, so-called end of communism there made people think, well, the revolu you know, revolutionary achievements won't go in a good direction. But I think, but that seems to me like a symptom of defeatism and a form of capitalist and right-wing ideology that wants to say, don't think big. Right, you will only make mistakes, and and it's in like too much of the left has started has, has has agreed with that rather than saying we can learn from mistakes. Not everything went wrong. We can achieve. We can build societies that will that will work for the benefit of the producers. That's not an impossible goal, right? Why should we think it's impossible? Why should we be stuck in a world that says there always has to be? A, a billionaire class and massive amounts of poor people. Like, don't we have more political will and political imagination than that? So I think that the left, some, oh, and then one last thing on this. Um, it seems like the left too much fell into a way of thinking about, 
if we're going to defend um, oppressed people, we have to embrace a kind of perspective of, of weakness or suffering. And it became a really moralistic politics. And this moralism makes it seem like it's bad to be strong. Where, whereas you know, classical Marxism is like, no, it's the strength of the working class that will be the that will open up the door to socialism and the communism. It's because of working class strength, right? We we control the way that things are produced. We control agriculture. It's a, and and the fact that there's a small ruling class. If the if the working class is united, the work the ruling class can be overthrown without that much of a problem. The the issue is just uniting and bringing together the working class. So um so the problem on the left has been kind of an embrace of moralism, an embrace of weakness, and a failure to recognize what the right has recognized, which is if you want to change society, you have to have political power. The uh, Well, you write that sometimes the best way to measure the strength of an idea is by the ferocity of its opponents. By this measure, socialism is clearly resurgent. All the forces of the capitalist establishment are aligned against it. So uh, uh, both parties, you know, the Republican and the Democratic Party, they both exaggerate the dangers and threats to stability and security that socialism poses. So is the fear of socialism an exaggeration when it comes to the security and stability of society, but a real threat to both the Democratic and Republican Party's grip on power? Is socialism not bad for society, as both parties claim, but bad for the current bipartisan control of political power is that what they fear the most from socialism? Their challenge, their uh, grip on power, more than any stability or insecurity that socialism may bring about. Absolutely, one hundred percent. And so they're right to be afraid of losing their grip and power because it's apparent to everyone that the you know the ruling parties in the U.S. have failed miserably. Right, the the economic the economy is in a terrible situation. The climate is a the major issue facing the planet and because the two major parties are mostly interested in maintaining their own political position which means that they depend on donations from um, the very rich and the um, capitalist class they're not going to make the changes that are necessary and so yes they're right to be afraid because um their hold on power is tenuous and the more that the the more that essentially everyone in the working class can pull together and actually realize how powerful we can be and how tenuous their hold is on how tenuous their hold on power is actually their days will be numbered the book also states that the united states of america perhaps the most capitalist of all the capitalist countries is ideally suited for the application of socialist economic methods and principles how so how is the u.s ideally suited for socialism we have a we we're a highly developed economy meaning you know the, the Soviet Union and China both had to industrialize and that and they had to industrialize in the context of a market economy. We already are industrialized. We're already have have built up the um, the productive infrastructure that we need. We're also um, you know, have a really highly developed agricultural sector and an educated working class. So because of these material advantages that we have, it's not like we have to design a productivist program based on industrialization. Instead, what we can do is use the achievements we have and figure out ways to plan the 
distribution of goods, services, so as to meet needs without having to say, oh no, how can we do this? We don't have the capacity to make any of these things, right? We don't have the knowledge. In fact, we have the capacity and the knowledge. It's just in the wrong hands, right? It's in the hands of the capitalist class rather than in the hands of the working class. I'll add one other thing is, is you know, it's um we're used to imagining revolution like kind of like storming buildings and like seizing factories like like a, a really physical process but in this setting in this kind of capitalism that we have now which is highly financialized capitalism in fact it's actually not that hard to dissolve the wealth of the capitalist class right it's not hard to seize their property because it's kind of a fictitious form of property right it's digital it's in deeds it's like intellectual property and so it's like the sheer declaration of every bit of stock is now owned by the people is incredible right i mean just, so you can really imagine like how financialization enables a seizure of the means of production that before might have required lots and lots of people now it's just a kind of transfer of ownership in a kind of strange way another way to think about this is you know, the in 2008, the government um, bailed out the banks, right? The capital capital had dissolved, like, tr you know, trillions of dollars had collapsed, trillions of dollars had vanished. And so the government issues, you know, all, does this quantitative easing and all these bailouts, and um, though let the finance sector survive. But, but what if it just didn't do that? Right. That would have that the finance sector would have collapsed and you would have had the basis now for a new socialist economy, a new socialist um, you know, finance system that would be folk that would focus on you know, restoring communities and protecting the environment rather than on um, enabling the circulation of, of stocks and bonds and, and IPOs and all these kind of crazy things that finance people do in ways just to increase the power um, and position of the wealthy. And you also point out that debt abolition provides the mechanism for definancializing the economy and establishing a basis for socialist planning. How can debt be ended without, again, as we discussed earlier in our conversation, causing troubles for the entire market and for all of us as a whole? Because as we know, whenever there's any problems within the market, the people who are the most marginalized, who are already in the most precarious position, they're the ones who suffer the most. So wouldn't the original forgiveness of debt cause huge economic turmoil, not only for the lenders, but for the borrowers? Is, is debt abolition dangerous um it's definitely dangerous for the lenders and that's part of the point right like they they're they won't be paid back so for the banks and um any financial institution any of these usurious credit card companies or payday loan um folks right they should be worried because they get nothing so, but what does this mean then for everyday people? Well, it means that debt abolition means for everyday people that folks with a mortgage now own their house free and clear. It's theirs. They don't have to worry about it. It means that people with student loans, right? Nothing to worry about. Totally every bit gone. It means that people 
overburdened by horrible kinds of medical debt, most of which people end up carrying on their credit cards, they don't have that anymore. So there's actually a liberating effect of debt abolition, not for the lenders, right? Their whole, you know, their whole sort of exploitative and, usur and usurious enterprise goes down. But for everyday people, um, they're now able to sort of breathe again and have opportunities to like build their lives again. So the first part of debt abolition is really, you know, it is, it is a little bit shocking, but then it actually also accompanies a second part um, in our program or our, our proposal here, our you know, idea, and that would be establish a new um, kind of centralized people, the people's bank or people's development bank that would then fund um, um, communities in making the decisions that they need for, let's say, restoring schools or sewage systems. Um, but it would, but the the loans wouldn't be done for the sake of profit. The loans would be ways of distributing um, opportunities and possibilities to places that they're most needed. So I. I think the real the real way to think about it is the the ways that debt works is debt is a way that the finance that that the financial class increases its hold um, and its authority in the economy. Once they can't do that anymore, then you can have um, an, an approach to, to finance and to money that actually is about planning for um, the community's benefit. You also mentioned that it's our responsibility to make the health of all people a priority. In the United States, we have the resources to fulfill this responsibility right now. We have people with the knowledge and skills to create and implement the vision of preventative, comprehensive, and responsive care we outline here. The requisite components already exist. Socialism will enable us to redirect our talents and resources away from capitalist profit and towards people's health and well-being. Lack of health care is a form of oppression and care for the whole person a form of liberation. When we have a sense of control over our lives and an ability to or contribute to something greater than ourselves, we can do more than survive. We can flourish. So is socialism then the end of not caring about others? Because that would be great if that could happen. But there have been a lot of examples, especially during the pandemic, of people here in the United States not caring about others, even denying that others are suffering while millions die. So how do we get people to start caring for each other instead of denying the suffering that is imposed upon the most vulnerable? One of the um, chapters in this book focuses on education, because the kind of change that you're talking about, Chuck, isn't going to happen overnight, right? Like we can abolish debts virtually overnight, right? Like a you know click of the button, but that doesn't change overnight the effects of living in a society with 40 years of really extreme neoliberal capitalism. It doesn't change overnight the effects of you know, 600 years of racism and genocide and efforts to establish white supremacy. It doesn't end overnight the impact of millennia of patriarchy, right? So, so it doesn't change. People don't all of a sudden learn to care because there's a new label on society that says, guess what, folks, we're now socialists. So that requires a lot of education. And we think that a, um, a free education, essentially from cradle to grave, as long as people are involved in it, I mean, as long as people want it, that they should have every 
educational opening and opportunity that they want. We think that education happens um, in, for, in like the formal schooling system, but also in forms of popular education um, that we a lot of us saw you know, emerge um, during during COVID, right? As people had all sorts of different kinds of new working groups and, and talks online that were um, different from what had gone on before. So we think with a process of education that lets people start to really learn about how our lives are interconnected and why they're mutually independent and why a kind of individualist, I'm on my own um, idea is a dangerous fiction that actually just is not part of, of anyone's reality that we think that when that the more that we can provide these educational opportunities is that people and, and experiences right experiences say of working in community gardens and 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 going to kind of meetings at deciding what the what the community needs to you know, where it needs to allocate its funds we think that this kind of education and practical work will in fairly short time, change how people recognize the need to care for each other and for the environment. Because honestly, it sometimes seems to me like this sort of this whole nobody cares vibe that we have right now is really amplified by some media voices, you know, right wing media and some negative political figures who when you really when you sort of drill down a little bit deeper, they actually believe in some kinds of family, right? They actually recognize that people have to be in caring relations with one another. They just restrict who they care for. And so in some ways we can build from the fact that they recognize there's some element of care here and extend that to say, you know what, we all we have to care for the whole of society and for the planet, particularly given this crisis, existential crisis of climate change. You also point out that green capitalism is a myth unless green refers to money. But often on right wing <laughs> media outlets, you will hear green capitalism referred to as socialist or communist. Why do you believe green capitalism is a myth? I mean, because people argue that the alternative that they want to the current state of capital, capitalism is just making capitalism green. Why do you think that's a myth? Um, climate change is a global problem. So it can't be solved by any one country making kind of policies just for itself. Um, I'm just thinking like, you know, how does that work for a country like Costa Rica or Spain or Portugal, these, you know, smaller countries that like they can pass everything green in the world. And if the U.S. keeps continuing along the path that we are, every, you know, so many countries will be um, just devastated by floods, fires, droughts. So it has to be addressed globally. Addressing it globally can't be done by markets because of the massive um, economic inequality that we have globally. The U.S., um, it, it, U.S., Canada, Australia, U.K. are primarily responsible for the um, you know, high levels of carbon in the atmosphere. We industrialized at the cost and at the of the lives and well-being of most every other country in the planet. We can say like the global north industrialized at the cost of the lives and well-being of the global south. And that has to be emphasized and acknowledged because those countries have a right to a better quality of life. And it can't just be like, we say something like, oh, you know, clap, cap on emissions, everybody gets the same. And then yet we produce so much more and they produce so little and get nothing. So it has to be the case that climate technologies, climate um, forms of, of, of um, 
of accommodation, of adaptation, that the knowledge for these things and the technologies for these things need to be shared rather than sold. Because if it's shared, then it can really make a difference. And every country, no matter how much money they have, can implement it. Um, and if, But if we keep it with markets, it just means it's going to be a essentially a tool of imperialism, a way that the U.S. enforces its policies on other countries for the benefit of the U.S. financial class. You also just two more questions for you, Jody. You also point out that in agriculture, so, social reconstruction will also build from non-capitalist achievements from practices and forms of knowledge that capitalism has generally expropriated, exploited and eliminated climate change, as well as the soil depleting and soul destroying effects of capitalist agriculture require us to dismantle the imperialist agricultural industrial complex and replace capitalism's profit motive with care for people on the planet. We have a world to win. Such a shift is often uh, described by its critics uh, and uh, opponents as a plan for us all to go back to nature and all become subsistence farmers. Is agriculture without capitalism going backward to a time that is believed to be better or forward to a time that has never occurred in the past? I'm going to go with forward to a time that's never occurred in the past, um, but it's going to be forward on the basis of different kinds of knowledge and different experiences. So, like, so there's this kind of criticism that sometimes waged on the left, like we have to keep industrial farming. That's false. Right. And it's false for a few different reasons. One, it's false because it presumes that more intensive um, agroecological measures will necessarily um, lead to kind of mass starvation. The premise there is that industrial cap industrial agriculture is feeding the planet but that's not true right the vast most of the american crops like the, the large bulk i don't remember if it's 70 percent something roughly 70 percent of american agriculture goes for um, stock feedstock and fuel rather than actually for feeding people right so it's like we are we grow like forms of essentially people can't eat the corn that we grow, much of the corn that we grow, and then soy products. So the, the idea that industrial, cap, industrial agriculture is feeding people is just wrong. So that's something we don't need to build from. Additionally, there's, the, there's a, a failure to acknowledge the way industrial agriculture has diminished the, the variety of different kinds of foods, diminished the, and, and depleted the capacities of the soil, and led to really harmful forms of monocropping and hurt the food independence of many, many um, countries. So in fact, by ending industrial agriculture, we're not kind of going backwards. We're actually recognizing, okay, there are some forms that we might be able to do with a large amount of machinery here, but overall, this has been a false path, right? A better path has to be one that that like emphasizes nutritious soil, makes um, um, prioritizes a diversity of different kinds of seeds, and recognizing that 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 that, that will take more people's involvement in it, but. More people being involved can actually make people sort of more in touch with the realities of food and make them more um, develop their capacity to care about the environment and the planet. 
One last question for you, Jody. We have been speaking with Jody Dean. She is a contributing editor of to Socialist Reconstruction, A Better Future for the United States. You can follow Jody on Twitter at Jody7768. As always, our final question for you, as it is for all of our guests, is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, oh, you no. may hate to answer, or our audience will hate your response. You are a political theorist. <laughs> what does it say about politics in the United States today when Fascism deniers are leading a very fascist movement, and socialist deniers are leading causes that bear all the trademarks of socialism. What does that reveal to you about the United States when it seems that both sides, on the far right or on the right and on the left, seem to be denying what their political horizon is? Good Lord, that's a question from hell. Um, <laughs> Yay, it finally worked! Yay! Uh, oh my God! Um, ah, shoot. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I wish I had like an hour to think about it and then call you back. Um, okay, so what it shows is that, um, I'll just emphasize on the left side, what it shows, no, for both, what it shows is the um, effects and triumph of capitalism and that this has been a major defeat. And it, and it shows this because the triumph of capitalism on the right has meant that the fascist forces are emboldened because there's not enough of a um, left force to stop them. And what it shows on the left is is that lefts like, um, gave up on our own ideals, gave up on our own goals. And so the the kind of defeat that you're talking about is one that we can we can come back from, we can address, but it requires um, owning, amplifying and build and, and fighting toward a socialist and communist horizon. That was a pretty good answer to a question from hell. <laughs> you you passed. You get a pass. All right. Thank you very much. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I'll send. I'm you just off. glad you didn't ask the Halloween costume question. <laughs> question. Okay, because that because I don't want to <laughs> don't put me. I don't want to have your thoughts about what's the most frightening costume in my head. So thank you very much, Jody. It's always great to hear your voice. Good to have you back on the show. Uh, be well, and you know that we'll be talking to you soon. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed it. Okay. Take care, Jody. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell. If what you, if, 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 I'll just say if you learned about or gained a new view or perspective on an alternative to capitalism from Jody Dean, if that made you realize that yes, this really is hell and there can be something different, show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which streams live this week on Thursday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash this is hell, or you can show your support for completely listener supported this is hell by visiting this is hell.com and clicking on support. When you become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon, not only do you get a special code word giving you a discount on all of our merchandise that you can find right now at thisishell.com when you click on support, but you also get access to over 350 past Patreon podcasts with each and every one featuring a monologue by me and a classic interview that currently are not available anywhere else online. So you essentially get more than a, more than an extra year of This Is Hell for just one month's subscription. On last week's Patreon podcast, it was all about love and robbing banks. First, I celebrated my anti-marriage with my non-spouse, my unwife, and as her unlawfully not-betrothed pseudo-husband at best, 
I offered my view on what makes a happy long-term commitment without the license and all the paperwork, bureaucracy, as well as interference by both the market and the state. Hey, maybe marriage is, is for you. Maybe that works for you. That's great, and I do not begrudge you or judge you, for that matter, in any way. And I hope you don't do anything like that of me and my non-wife because we're not married. But as I have been with the same person for so freaking long, I figured why not share what I have learned about intimate relationships. And no, I'm not going to tell you how freaking long we have been together to find that out. You got to subscribe to our Patreon podcast, just like the week prior when I finally revealed my age on Patreon. If you want to know how long we've been together, you got to become a Patreon patron. Following my poor, likely irrational and obtuse logic on relationships and a brief history of our non-marriage, at least from my view, which again is legally blind. We shared an interview from October 15th, 2007, a conversation with William K. Black, author of The Best Way to Rob a Bank is to Own One, How Corporate Executives and Politicians Looted the SNL Industry. Bill was the uh, former, or is the former, director of the Institute for Fraud Prevention during the savings and loan crisis of the 1980s and 1990s, when nearly a third of all savings and loans went out of business. After Senators John Glenn and John McCain were caught doing favors for the SNLs in exchange for contributions and other perks, they got off with a slap on the wrist. The inf- this infuriated one of the bankers who had been busted, Charles Keating, who sent a memo that read, in part, Get Bill Black, Kill Him Dead, metaphorically, of course. Bill's book, The Best Way to Rob a Bank is to Own One, shows how, despite it being over 30 years ago, banks are still governed under very much the same regime of rules and regulation that led to destructive fraud in the SNL crisis. But you can only hear my very non-sage advice on how to have a committed long-term relationship, or at least one that should be committed to any number of psych wards, and why my non-marriage was only possible due to the long, out-of-business Lincoln Park restaurant the Bangkok Inn and why bankers make the best bank robbers because they usually get away with it. You can only hear all that by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. Richard, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is considering all of the crises we are experiencing today from wars to pandemics to climate change and everything in between as we approach halloween what trick-or-treater costume would frighten you the most (laughs) our mark a answers a sexy alex jones (laughs) that is very frightening wow mark right out of the box very good job mark our Fabio AJ friend answers with the classic, your mom. <laughs> Ray O answers the same as always, Elton John. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what trick-or-treater costume would frighten you the most? Shannon N answers a sexy nurse holding a giant novelty check made out to Ukraine. <laughs> okay. Sarah M no relation <laughs> sort of like you can combine anything with zombie and it's scarier anything plus maga hat maga scientist maga police officer maga teacher etc <laughs> all right just make your costume maga i got it what trick or treater costume would frighten you the most 
Jeffrey Yosefus Dorchin answers Tucker Carlson with glow-in-the-dark balls. <laughs> I guess he's juggling or something. I, I assume. It can't be a reference to testicles. <laughs> Kim G answers still, or answers one of those creepy rubber Reagan masks. Oh, yes. It was in some movie where they had, they were bank robbers yes, wearing Reagan exactly. I can't remember what movie that was. What trick-or-treater costume would frighten you the most? PRPD answers, a white middle-aged man in a business suit. <laughs> if he was trick-or-treating, yeah, that would be really frightening. Ladio answers, Jesus, the real one, incarnate, pissed out of his mind on his own wine blood. <laughs> All right. And last we have David S. Answers, what trick-or-treater costume would frighten you the most? A Trump costume. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever. This is Hell Swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us. You can email it to us. But we have to have your answer by the end of this week's show following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. When we will be announcing this week's winner, we will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell later this week. Richard, who is coming up as our next guest here on This Is Hell? Tomorrow we have reporter Cerise Castle, is that correct? Yes. Is the author of the 15-part investigation series, A Tradition of Violence, the history of deputy gangs in the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, which appears at knock-la.com. Cerise was on the show in April of last year, and we will get an update on her investigation. And uh, who's going to be the final guest this week? We believe it's filmmaker Joe Winston will be on to discuss his new movie, Punch Nine for Harold Washington, the story of Harold Washington, elected in 1983 as Chicago's first African-American mayor, the political battles he fought, and his legacy to Chicago and the nation. Also coming up later this week, I love the dramatic flourish there at the end. Also coming up later this week, we'll share This Week in Rotten History. We'll reveal what is happening on this week's Patreon podcast, which streams live again this Thursday. We'll hear another moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin, and we'll wrap up the week as we do every week by announcing the winner of this week's question from hell, who will uh, will win their choice of This Is Hell merchandise. You can see all of our stuff again right now at thisishell.com when you click on support. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, and live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Richard Norwood for producing. But before we go, some of you who follow us on social media may have seen an image we shared of an ad in the weekly small-town newspaper from northern Michigan called the Houghton Lake Resorter, a newspaper I often uh, do some media criticism of when uh, you listen on Patreon. Along with uh, something called the Free Speech Center, Center, the Houghton Lake Resorter celebrated National Newspaper Week by running a half-page advertisement that reads in all caps, We're not... And then in quotes, the media. So prepare yourself, Houghton Lake Resorter and the Free Speech Center, as we are amassing a huge legal team for attempt for your attempt at co-opting what we have been using as a tagline since way back in 1996, and that is, this is not the media, this is hell. Apparently, the Free Speech Center and Houghton Lake Resorter believe that any speech is free as you can take whatever you want and plagiarize it. But I don't think that's what was meant when the writers of the Constitution protected free 
Speech. I don't think they meant that you could just steal anybody's speech and use it as your own. With that in mind, I'd like to exercise my free speech by saying, F the Free Speech Center and the Houghton Lake Resorter. This is not the media. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>